all, and welcome back to another episode of There's Danger Here. I'm Leilani. And I'm Sam. And today, Sam is taking the reins for a case of her own. Yeah, so I'm excited to bring this one forward. I figured like a little bit about me here. Uh, one of my love languages with Scott is we will like sit on my couch and watch YouTube videos of people getting arrested yeah. all the time. Um, we'll watch. DUIs are great ones Mm -hmm. Um, that like crazy, like this woman's going wild in the middle of the street. Also good arrest videos. Um, But because of that, YouTube gives us other things. So I got one about like the best court moments in 2023. And this case popped up and it actually made me like rewind and watch it again because it was so like spectacular that I had to look into it. So you're going to get that case today. I can dig it. I also love that your love language is watching new school cops with your significant other. Oh, yeah. Seems like uh, pretty fun to be on this side of it, like in the comfort of your couch, cozy blanket on, and know that you're not the one getting handcuffs put on you. (laughs) (laughs) The whole time you're talking about it, all I'm doing in the background is singing bad boys, bad boys. Oh, yeah. That's like That's all I could think of. I need to go back and rewatch those because I didn't get to watch those as a kid. They were bad TV, quote unquote, by my mom. So nobody said I got to watch them, but I watched them. Yeah, I need to go give it a try because this case actually really talks a lot about like that whole world, the underbelly of police, which is pretty, pretty fascinating. All right. So what are we talking about? So um, I'm going to be telling you a story of like a little different type of danger here today. There's going to be murder. There's people who have lost their life and obviously a very senseless act. Um, And that's usually what our brains jump to when we're thinking danger and like stories along the lines of like what's scary. But today we're going to be talking about something a little different and We're going to find danger in a place that you would least expect it. So, on April 10th, 1993, Jesse Hernandez, Juan Medina, Armando Lazo, and Robert England were walking home from a house party on Jamaica Street in El Paso, Texas. Uh, Just a quick side note here, El Paso's crime rate at the time was like at an all-time high. Gang violence was the number one cause of death in El Paso at that time. And the community as a whole, they were just over it. They were ready for it to be done. Um, It was starting to become pretty exhausting. So these four boys who were all in their teens were walking down a residential street when a red car approached them. It stopped, backed up, moved forward, and stopped again. Believing that the car belonged to one of their friends, the boys approached the vehicle. The car, however, continued this little cat and mouse pattern until it eventually drove off. The boys turned the corner and continued to make their way home. Minutes later, that same car approached, parked on the wrong side of the street, and turned off its lights. When the four boys again approached the car, shots were fired from the car's passenger side. Robert England suffered a single gunshot wound to the head and died quickly. His body was discovered approximately 150 feet from six 22 caliber bullet casings. 
Armando Lazo was shot once in his abdomen and once in his thigh, with both bullets entering the front of his body. His body was found on the doorstep of a home nearby, directly behind where the shots had originated. Those neighbors who Alfonso ended up on, they called 911 at 12.18 a.m. after hearing six consecutive gunshots and the sound of someone knocking at the front door. Medina and Hernandez ran and were not struck. So both all of these boys are anywhere from the age of 16 to 17. Um, and they were known in the neighborhood. So like walking home on a party night was not uncommon for any of any of these kids either. Well, I mean, definitely at that time, walking anywhere. I mean, not a big deal. It's not like I feel like nowadays where it's like it's so dangerous out. Like even when I was young, I remember being out until the streetlights came on. So I can imagine yeah, it, this is pretty normal activity for teens. And I am surprised about you said that they thought that the red car might be one of their friends. I feel like when I was that age, I knew what all my friends were driving. Like I would know if that was a vehicle that was not. Yeah. So I think that like this group of kids, they really mingled with a lot of different ages as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wouldn't have been uncommon for like one of their high school friends to be hanging out with like a 25 year old, maybe mm-hmm. who's like cruising them around the neighborhood. Oh, so they're probably just like a passenger and like, oh, that's probably like my friend. Right. Or something. Okay. That so, makes more sense. Yeah. There was a lot of like families and cousins and a bunch of people who just sort of mingled amongst different crowds. So okay. I could see maybe in that sense how they just assumed it was a friend. So, in El Paso, there was a new DA that had just been elected, and he was elected on the platform of stopping crime crime and ending gun violence. So, when these two teenagers ended up dead, the police needed to wrap this case up and come to a conclusion very fast. There was a lot of pressure. So, the investigation was handed to Detective Marquez. Marquez was known to the police as the Punisher because he was running tough investigations. That sounds like a horrible name for an investigator. I mean, like, good if he's a good guy, but the worst if he's not. Yeah, it's not a name that I would, like, love to hear if I was the one on the other end of that, invest- like, on the other I end mean, of the investigation. Yeah, like, you're going to get interrogated by the puncher. I'm like, mm, no, thank you. I'm not really excited about this. Can I have, like, Jimmy Softfoot? Like, that's yeah. that's better. <laughs> Jimmy Softfoot. But is that a real person? Or no. Somebody who sounds nicer. He sounds unique. That's Same. for sure. That's a great name. So on April 12th of 1993, just two days after the murders, Jesse Hernandez, one of the surviving victims, was brought back in to give a second statement. Detective Marquez asked Hernandez to write out a description of the events from the night. In the middle of writing his statement, Detective Marquez took the paper, crumpled it up, and threw it back at Jesse and told him, quote, cut the bullshit, end quote. Detective Marquez started to accuse Hernandez of killing his friends. His friends that had just been killed in front of him just two days previously. Jesse was told that Juan Medina, the other surviving victim, had already implicated him. Hernandez was threatened that if he didn't confess, he would go to jail and he'd get the death penalty. Hernandez did not confess to the crime, although years later, when asked about this interrogation, he stated that he was 
close to confessing because he was so scared of what Marquez was threatening. So Marquez is um, dealing with, right, he's an underage kid. He's, what, 16, 17, something like that? Yeah, he's, uh, Marquez is 17. Okay. And no parents are there? No parents, no lawyers. And, um, and he's not trained in underage, probably. I would imagine not. Like, 30 years ago yeah. in Texas. Yeah, I doubt that. Probably weren't teaching their police, like, you know, the constructive investigating skills with teenagers yeah and so he's just coming at him like oh i know you did this and this kid is just witness this horrific event a couple of his friends have died and now this guy's screaming at him and throwing out his original statement of what he knows that had happened and right like, nope you're lying like, it's like the a witness yeah like one of the two witnesses that you have you've now just really just put him in a box and said everything you say is worthless that's insanity and then also mourn your two good buddies like oh it's just awful yeah and the trial i mean if he's still in shock from the event i can imagine he was close to confessing if he's just like i don't even know what's happening right now because your body goes through so much when you deal with something like that yeah he probably wasn't sleeping and yeah no okay so poor little kid right there yeah we're starting off great yep The next witness that was brought in for questioning was a 15-year-old, Michael Johnston. Michael was interrogated for eight hours. For the entire length of his interrogation, he remained handcuffed, and he did not have his parents or a lawyer present. As you asked in the last one, like all of these underage kids, it's safe to assume they had no parents or no lawyer with them. Um, They weren't typically offered that option and so they didn't really know to ask it sounds like which sounds crazy to me and I don't know back then the rules um because I know nowadays like parents either have to be present they have to give consent or it's not even um you can't bring it into the court it's not not admissible evidence at that point so I didn't dive like super deep into the details of this but at one point they mentioned uh how they read like the juvenile rights to um one of the like suspects that they brought in sure which makes me think that they there is some protocols Mm -hmm. related to it but it sounded as if like they still were able to make that decision on their own um and decide whether they needed someone there or not that's absolutely ridiculous because what boys their brains don't even develop until they're in their mid-20s like they're not completely Oh, they're idiots. Yeah, they're not completely <laughs> developed. And here you are like, oh, here's your Miranda rights. You understand them? Yeah, good. I'm not going to tell you about the lawyer part, probably. I'm not going to tell you your parents have to be here, probably. Right. Like, I'm going to just breeze over that so I can get the information I want. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It's, it's that's incredibly scary. That's poor police work. Yeah. Um, not to mention that, as I was saying, this 15-year-old was handcuffed to this chair for eight hours. Um, This kid, Michael, he was accused of shooting Lazo in England. Uh, Marquez lied to Johnston and told him that his friends had already told the police that he had done the crime. Young Michael was then told that if he did not just confess, quote, you're going to get the electric chair. And as a matter of fact, I'll pull the lever myself, end quote. So this is the second kid we're threatening with a death penalty because he wants to fit a narrative. Uh, exactly. And this kid actually just is like a 
floating friend in the vicinity of like the group of boys. Yeah. Um, not really any real connection. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> A little background on me. I thought I uh, turned that on to vibrate there. Got something. Um, so uh, he continued to berate Johnston and warn him that he was going to be taken to jail where he would get, quote, molested and raped. Um, end quote. I just want to also preface this right now. There's going to be some sort of tough language and uh, descriptive terminology coming up here. And I apologize. Just want to put a trigger warning right now. Um, I mean, we're a podcast that deals with true crime and all the terrible things. So I think it's pretty safe to say that most of our episodes are going to deal with some tough stuff. So consider it that you've been warned. <laughs> Perfect. Moving forward in all of our shows. So he said that he wasn't going to let him off easy. Uh, at 3 a.m., eight hours into the questioning, Johnston, 15-year-old, confessed to killing Armando Lazo and Robert England. But Johnston, along with others who were questioned and also, uh, along with others who had been questioned, also confessed to the same shootings. There was a total of five false confessions at the end of this investigation. So they're just rounding up everybody and trying to see what sticks. They're trying to find who did it by telling them everyone did it, I guess. Oh, you won't find this one guilty. I have another one in the queue that maybe you'll find guilty. That is absolutely bonkers. Yeah. So they continued to question the other individuals and uh, linked another group of boys to the crime. On April 21st, they ended up calling in 17-year-old David Rangel. Rangel's mother was told that David was being brought in to question him about these harassing phone calls that had been happening in the neighborhood. Um, And if she didn't let him come in and speak to them, that she would get charged with obstruction of justice. So we brought him in false pretenses and lied to the parents? Yes. Good. Because the moment that David sat down, there was not a single question about a harassing phone call. And he jumped right in to asking him questions about the murders. He used the same tactics that he had been using on the other young kids. Uh, Quote, you're a pretty white boy with green eyes who should expect to be fucked in prison. You'll get the death penalty if you don't confess. End quote. David then told Detective Marquez that his 16-year-old cousin, Daniel Villegas, had joked about killing the boys, along with 15-year-old Rodney Williams and 21-year-old Marcos Gonzalez. Marcos insisted that David wrote that phone call in a statement. So this poor, like, David Mm -hmm. was really backed into a corner here. Yeah, he's confessing under duress. Yeah, this reminds me of the witch trials over on the East Coast in the 1800s where they're like, if you confess and you bring in somebody else, you won't get in as much trouble. So, of course, they name somebody else. Right. You just start throwing any name out. Of course you do. Yeah. Um, But so a portion of what David wrote was Daniel Villegas admitted to shooting one of the victims while he was with three other friends. He stated he used a sawed-off shotgun. Viegas was in a black car. Viegas claimed that he shot Lazo once, saw Lazo run to the nearby home, and then chased him to the house and 
Thayer shot him again. After reading this statement, though, Detective Marquez literally ripped it up. Well, of and- course he did. It had a bunch of misinformation. The car color's wrong. The shot up, sawed-off shotgun is wrong. It was a twenty-two, and he didn't. Nobody got chased to the door. Yeah, it was none of the story matched. Yeah. The only thing that was the same was the location. Oh, I'm sure because he told them where it yeah. happened. Of course, which everyone would know, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the detective ripped it up. Uh. He told David that he needed to write it again and leave details out. The more David wrote, the more Marquez became frustrated. The detective then started to type a statement himself. And at the end of it, after erasing conflicting details from the events of the actual night, the story that Daniel or that David had told the detective was completely changed and typed by the officer Marquez himself. Marquez asked him to sign this statement, and David initially refused. But in order to get him to sign this statement, he threatened that, quote, he would be raped so often and so brutally that his rectum would enlarge and he would not be able to fart, end quote. There was something wrong with this police officer. I mean, clearly he's attacking young kids that have absolutely nothing to do with this. He has no evidence to back it up, and then he's forcing them to... Well, he's creating the statements for them and forcing them to sign it. It's like disgusting. It's yeah. disgusting. And it's disgusting that no one else like ever stepped in to, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Like you would think that in, in the videos that I've watched on my YouTube, you know, education, I see officers type stuff for people who have been arrested frequently. Mm-hmm. Like that's not uncommon that someone talks and they're typing. Um, but, but they're has, not making the story up. But yeah, it has to be what they say. Right. You can't add in your own verbiage. You can't add in any of your own adjectives, right. anything. It has right. to be verbatim what they're saying. Right. And it's not even like this officer was paraphrasing either. He was like just writing a fiction novel, basically. He's like, your story's wrong. Let me make it make sense. Yeah. And then you can sign it. Yeah. Um, which he ends up getting our poor David to do. So David signs that paper Uh, the entire time, though, he wanted to insist that he was fairly certain that Daniel was always joking, considering he was laughing the entire time he was telling that story. Um, I think it's important to mention as well that Daniel was like known to be someone who really like bent the truth um, or not even bent the truth, made up falsehoods all the time just to sort of be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I read is that he, like, told all of his friends he had a waterbed. And he didn't. So that's sort of bizarre. <laughs> like, so and he just was known to be that type of kid. He was a 17-year-old who, or 16-year-old, actually, Daniel was at the time. And he just inflated uh his own personality. We all know one of those kids growing up that they would make complete stories and you're like, yeah, that totally different, like totally didn't happen. There's no way. And you're like, all right, like just continue with your storytelling. Right. You hear the first story and you're sort of like, whoa, that's crazy. And then you get another story from them, like either later that day or the next day. And you're like, hmm, this is, that's pretty like suspicious. <laughs> That's unlikely. Your life is really incredible for only being 16 years old. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, so he was one of those. Daniel was one of those. 
So now uh, more names are in the hands of the police department. That same day after David's confession, they brought in 15-year-old Rodney Williams. uh, Alfonso Marquez, the detective, and his partner, Detective Graves, taking the lead on this, brought in Williams without legal representation and without his parents. But of course. He was subjected to endure a six-hour interrogation. He repeatedly requested to see his mother, and Williams was repeatedly denied that request. See, again, also illegal. Like, once they ask for the parents or they ask for legal counsel, like, interview's over. It's just done. Yeah. Like, I, they get frustrated. They, you know, they sort of, like, maybe, like, try to hint one more time at, like, are you sure you need your mom? Like, but they stand up and they pick pack up their papers and they go out of the room. Like, yeah. it's done. Yeah, you're not even supposed to hint the next time. Like, as soon as they say it, all right, interview right. is legally right. done. Like, that's it. Go yeah. with somebody. I've heard the, like, the frequent after that, though, like, oh, that really disappoints me. Oh, like, yeah. I hear that a lot. In, like, all of, you know, again, all my research that I've done. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's poor kid just wanted his mom. During the questioning, Detective Graves insisted that he knew Williams was involved in the Electric Street murders. Uh, Viegas was said to have allegedly shot Liezo and England, and Williams still maintained the innocence, asserting that neither he nor Viegas were involved. Williams claimed that they were watching movies at the Village Green apartment complex on the night of the murders. Detective Graves threatened Williams with charges and jail if he did not admit to his involvement. So, to force a confession, Graves promised Williams that he would go home if he provided an implicating statement. Additionally, Graves assured Williams that there were no other interests in prosecuting Viegas and they were not pursuing any charges against him. Williams ultimately signed a statement that was typed and prepared by the officers and gave uh, the information that said Viegas had pulled the trigger. So once again, we fabricated a story rather than do investigative work and be like, were they where they said that they were? Out with others, I assume, watching movies. Right. So instead of looking that up, they were like, nope, here's a statement that says you guys did it, sign it. Right. They didn't even look into any of like his story or just verify what he had said. They just instantly went to like, oh, no, I'm going to type this up for you and I want you to sign it. But don't worry, we're not going for you. It's not, this isn't about you. So the statement that they had typed up was that the three of the boys were at the Village Green Apartments when they were picked up by some individuals uh, named Popeye and Snoopy. They were in a white mid-sized car. The statement detailed the alleged theft of beer and a drive around the area, and then an encounter with a group of boys on Trans Mountain Road, which ultimately ended in Viegas shooting them. Following the signed statement, Rodney Williams, who was promised that he was not under investigation, was then arrested for capital murder. 
However, charges against him were later dropped due to insufficient evidence and the prosecutors decided not to pursue it any further. It's because there's no evidence. This is all made up. Right. And how shady, like, that that has to be illegal too, right? You can't tell someone that you're offering them a deal. Like, we're not, like, we're not investigating you. Yeah, um... I know that they can't say that they can offer him a deal because that's not the police end. That'd be between the defense right. and prosecutors. Right. I do know that you can tell people non-truths to get information from them. Yes. That's not actually illegal. But the fact that he said that they're not investigating seems a little on the suspect side. Yeah, it seems, it seems like that's ultimately if he's signing the statement that he was there during these murders, you're implicating yourself and then as you said like it's no longer in the police hands it's like up to the prosecutors yeah, that kids decide. decide like oh we're gonna press charges like yeah. so it just seems again like even to an, a grown adult it would be confusing but you do this to a 17 a year old and it's just it's just not obviously not gonna go well so at this point, the interrogation actually became even more vicious. Um, Gonzalez, who was the cousin, uh, he was 18 years old. He endured some of like the toughest interrogation techniques. Well, I'm sure he's an, legally an adult. I'm sure they he, don't have to worry about the parents. Exactly. Although it's like, did they even worry about the parents <laughs> in the other cases? But Marcos really got a, dealt a bad hand here. So Marcos claims that he received those obviously those same threats of rape and violence and the death penalty as the other boys but when he refused to sign the confession he was repeatedly slammed into the wall every time he refused he was physically assaulted until ultimately he signed the confession he was slammed into the wall for hours reported to be up to 4 hours of just constantly refusing to sign the confession and then continually to be shoved into the wall. See, again, I'm going to go back to the witch trials that I just talked about where you get somebody to confess and claim somebody else, same thing. I'm going to torture you until you confess. They're right. literally torturing this kid, which is, again, illegal for them right. to do, but they're torturing him until he confesses. Like, yeah. all right, witch trial. I, like, you have told me once before like or made a few times and it fascinated me about like the training that military oh so your people, school yeah. yeah yeah so um the survive evade resist escape yeah i never know if i say it in the right order because i refused to go to the school because it was intimidating it's scary as hell <laughs> <laughs> so you have to sign a waiver that says that you are okay with them breaking a bone typically they choose a small bone like i think most often it's like a finger they're not going to go for... That like, makes it better. Well, I mean, they're not going to go for, like, a femur or long bone. Right, something right. that's going to be... Could kill you. <laughs> well, among other things, right. yeah. Um, but they do, um, in order to break people, they torture them. Um, one of my good friends, he was actually a SEER instructor for a while, and he said, actually, most often, it was easier to break people with kindness than it was to torture them. Like, because if you're just like, all right, well, I'm going to give you a meal. Right. If you give me this information you like groom them yeah yeah um but again i mean torture does work and they said even in seer school there's over 90 percent of the people there that 
will give up some sort of information, whether it's important or not, not necessarily like indicative. It's just that they can break most of the people that come through there. Yeah, I would like it would take a very unique individual to just be able to take it. And Mm -hmm. with the like hanging fear of like death over you, too. And, And that's one thing, I guess, about that school is like, you know, you know, the most part, you know, it's coming and you know, they're not going to kill you. Yeah. They want like, you're a part of their team. Like they want you to do well. Yeah. But under duress, it can definitely, like sometimes you lose sight of the fact that it's just training. Right. But even then, like it's military members they are specifically trained for these types of things. It's not like this situation where it's cops and kids. This kid has no idea what's happening. I can't even imagine how frightening that would be because even like I said I wouldn't even like thought about seer school back when I thought I was going to be a lifer and I thought you know I was going to be in the military forever I was going to do I was going to do the dang thing and then I that's why he's such a bad but the idea of allowing somebody to break a bone I was like I I can't even no yeah I can't do it no I would just be like thinking about which bone the whole time like trying to get them yeah. to grab my pinky or something yeah <laughs> they don't always like i said a lot of times you can break people more with kindness than you right. can with actual torture but this kid was actually tortured yeah yeah and like just slammed like so many times into the wall for hours for i'm surprised hours. that honestly that the cops got away with it because there has to be physical markings on this child um, most of the time what interrogation rooms are like concrete or it's a, it's a hard wall either way but I feel like they're usually concrete and if you're slamming somebody into that there's gonna end up being marks so there actually there was um, and he was asked about it uh, by his parents he was 18 though at the time but he was asked about it by his parents and like surrounding friends um, and he was too afraid to tell anyone how he got them well I'm sure I mean, these cops are threatening that they're going to, you know, be put to death for something that they didn't even do. Right. They're torturing them to get a confession. I would definitely be afraid that the cops would retaliate if I called them out yeah. for what they did. Yeah, he he didn't open his mouth at all. He kept it shut yeah. and he just said that it was like him and a friend messing around. So, um, in the law, too, snitches get stitches, I guess. Yeah, yep. <laughs> so... He ultimately signed a confession um, that mostly linked Viegas to this crime. Um, And that is where all of the cops' attention turns to now. So Daniel Viegas was 16 years old. Uh, Detective Marquez, like, had his sights set on him at this point. He started to tell Viegas, uh, who was also handcuffed to the chair for the entire interrogation, that he had been implicated and that they knew he had committed the crimes. He claimed to read portions of the statements that had been given to him by his cousins and his friends and told Viegas that he was going to get the death penalty. He, quote, promised Viegas, uh, if you don't confess, He's going to get put in jail and you'll be repeatedly raped by fat faggots. But he didn't, end quote, <laughs> but he didn't stop there. He grabbed Viegas, looked him in the eye, and told him that he would, quote, kick his fucking ass if he didn't just confess. I will take you to the desert and kick your fucking ass. 
right when you think you're about to be done, I will stop, bring you closer to town, and then stop and kick your fucking ass again. Like, that's a quote, which is strange to me that they have that, but it's like, he's just not very literate, this man, either. Like, the language he used yeah. is just not, like, I don't know, it's not eloquent in the slightest. Well, I'm sure it's heat of the moment he's trying to threaten this. And oh, right. Even if, I mean, if I'm on the receiving end, depending if he's, if he's screaming at my face, it's still probably going to be pretty convincing, and you're already being tortured. Oh, for sure. I'd probably believe it. Um. So, when Viegas remained passionate that he was not the one who did the these murders, uh, Detective Marquez then slapped him. Every time Viegas continued to plead his innocence, Al Marquez would slap him. Daniel eventually broke and confessed to killing the two boys. So he was brought directly to the judge to offer his confession. And right before he was allowed to appear in front of the judge, Detective Marquez reminded him under his breath that he would bring him out to the desert for the beating that he would almost never recover from. And were there witnesses of this? So there were. Uh, that, like, I can, like, envision this in my head at this point. The detective and Daniel were standing outside of, like, the judge, like, the courtroom um, where he was about to appear. And between, it, there was four men in this room. And the detective, like, sort of leans into Daniel right before they just got called in to go into this room. And he leans in and he just reminds him, like, I will beat you. Like, mm -hmm. you remember what you told me. Just go in there and be a good boy. Like, basically what he's saying. And years later, the other men that were in the room have said that they have, they were there and they heard that interaction take place. But nobody ever brought it up. Like, nobody was like, hey, he's, like, coercing him into his statement. Not that I, he's going in. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I don't think anyone ever, like, Decided to like raise the red flag there and the integrity sometimes. of the people in this investigation is pretty low. I like it's like sort of how I envision the Texas police, but <laughs> like, no offense to the police in any way. Um, that was very offensive. To I know it was, it was, it was, and I should like again, I think it's important that I also say, like, I so value our police officers and the work they do. Um, we get like as nurses sort of the tail end of what they deal with out in the streets, mm -hmm. and by then they're already like like restrained or sedated, and they're still difficult to deal with sometimes. And they have like such a difficult job. I cannot even imagine, kind of, yeah, doing what they have to do. So by no means <laughs> is this a smear campaign for cops, but. I guess the Texas police just, like, live in my head as, like, being scary. It just reminds me of, like, a movie, I guess, rather than real life. Like, this is what sounds like would happen in a movie if there was, like, somebody that infiltrated the police force that was dirty. That's, that's what it sounds like to me. It doesn't sound like real life where, like, so many people would let this happen. Right. Um, I know it was, I guess, sort of a different time. Different beliefs. They definitely did things differently. They yeah. Grown, you know, as a as the force has grown, um, but I still, it just still seems like nobody had the integrity to be like, hey, 
this is wildly inappropriate. Right. Like you're accusing people without evidence. There's not even circumstantial evidence to back this up. Kids are saying something and it's completely different than what actually happened in real life based on, I don't know, the possibility of investigation, the evidence that they found, the fact that they said there was, you know, the red car, the 22s, like there's gotta be evidence there. Yeah. Um, the bodies maybe if there's the bullets are still in them like you can compare to make sure that it it wasn't also a shotgun there like but no we're not gonna do any actual investigation just turned a blind eye um and they ultimately ended up pinning this on daniel this is bananas um so daniel did confess in front of that judge and then he like the second he left that room and he left the police custody, he recanted it. But at that point, it was too late. Uh, to get into like what you were just saying, though, mm-hmm. uh, before I guess we bring up anything else that involved in this trial right now is the fact that there were there was other evidence out there that the police chose not to investigate. There was like a group of boys who was known to hate these boys who were walking home. They had just been in a fight just a few weeks earlier. The one of them had claimed like, I am going to kill you. And then that very same night, just a few blocks away, there was a shooting at a house party. The same responding officer, first responding officer that went to the shooting of these four boys was the officer that went to the second shooting. Um, so it just shows how close they are. Yeah. Like they're within blocks of each other. The shooting happened with a 22 caliber. They ultimately found that gun and they found who it was registered to. And uh, they never once looked into anything after that. That's ridiculous. The boy who the gun belonged to, he owned a red car. Of course he did. Of course he did. Uh, his alibi was that he was driving around between midnight and 1230 in the neighborhood. This is not real life. And the cops knew all of this. Yeah. And they're still like, yeah, but beating a confession out of somebody who's innocent is so much easier and- than putting together actual evidence and making a real case. It's wild. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, Do we know who the kid, like the gun was registered to? Do we know any information about that kid? um, We do know a little information about him. um, And he is ultimately in jail now. Yeah. um, Related to gang violence. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, he was 17. Yeah. And so the gun actually wasn't registered to him. It was registered to his older cousin, who Mm -hmm. was 21. but he was the one who was found to have the gun. And when the police showed up to that second scene, mm-hmm. um, no one was killed, obviously, in that shooting. In the second one, and yeah. there was no reason for like pressure, like any charges or investigation really didn't like take place. Because I think there was like the the focus was on the boys that had died just a few blocks later. Yeah, but even in, I mean, if you have a 22 in the vicinity of where somebody was just killed, we're not matching that. So they didn't match it. This is going to like infuriate you. Uh, the gun came into police custody. 
the bullets were not tested. The gun was not matched to any of the like crime scene at the original crime scene. And then the gun was thrown out. Of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. Because uh, it could be later used to exonerate somebody if you keep it. I don't even understand how that happened. It was. So it was. I will give a little credit. It was put into evidence for a brief period of time. But then it was thrown out. That's wild. That is wild. Like, I don't know if it was just like a. You know, they were moving, like, and so they're like, well, let's just get rid of some of this extra evidence that's no, weighing us down. I or, think it has to do with, like, the types of, like, why the evidence was collected and the type of crime. So if it's in, like, a murder um, or something like that, I think they have to keep it for a certain amount of time or for certain, like, I don't know all the specifics, but I do know that there's, like, some evidence that cannot be gotten rid of. And some that can, so I'm sure because they didn't bother to link it to the actual crime where somebody was killed, they didn't have to keep it for as long. Right. But still, why the fuck didn't they match it to the crime that happened just a little bit? Of, I mean, same responding officer. You'd think he'd be like, oh my goodness, look at this. These are so similar. Like, Because you're trained to look for this type of stuff. Right. But we just overlooked it this one time. We just decided not to go down that path. Uh, we decided not to be that day. Yeah. I don't know what's um, happening. And what's also fascinating about this, too, is, like, there wasn't really, like, Daniel wasn't a bad kid. Like, all of the reports of him, he had no interactions with the police. There was nothing that, like, I found anywhere that, like, maybe Detective Marquez had, like, a vendetta towards his family or, like, like there was nothing that, like, I found anywhere that would make you think, like, oh, he's going to just decide that Daniel did this because he wants to get him. It yeah. just like sort of wound up in Daniel's lap, which was really unfortunate luck. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, this doesn't sound like real life. Is. It will be a movie, I'm sure of it. Why didn't we do real investigative work? Yeah, it will. I'm positive that someone is working on the rights to this because I will get into now the next chapter of Daniel's life here. Oh, good. I'm not even past the first part. Yeah. Uh, this will, yeah, just stay tuned here. Um, so, Daniel Viegas uh, has now confessed um, and he was put to trial for capital murder. This trial began on December 5th, 1994, just 592 days after his arrest. On April 21st, 1993, Viegas was deemed mentally slow and he was represented by his counsel, Jamie Olavis. The trial focused on the shootings and the state relied on only the statements from David Rango, Marcus Gonzalez, Rodney Williams, and Daniel Viegas himself. So again, they're not even bringing any evidence into the mix. They're like, yep, these people said it. Yeah. Didn't I just have a case like I did? My death row case with uh, Ivan Cantu? Yes. Where we're like, is there going to be actual evidence? No, the state relied on a single person who perjured herself. That's actually like, I was thinking a lot about that case when I was looking into this. Like, that is a person who was known to not be trustworthy that they had in like the 
in the case that you had brought up. Yeah, she's a known drug addict, which typically prosecutors avoid because of they're considered to be non-reliable witnesses or non-trusting and public opinion is very low of that type of person. Right. Uh, especially like back then. And so people wouldn't necessarily believe their statements. And so a lot of times prosecutions would ignore them. And in that case, they specifically just relied on her. Right. And it, like that really resonated with me here because ultimately all of the state's witnesses recant their their testimony like they all are saying like the statements they signed were not real like we didn't that's actually we don't really mean that yeah it was under duress yeah and you would assume instantly that would just like mm, it's a mute point like they're no longer yeah they're no longer reliable we i'm shocked the state wanted to call them like yeah just blows my mind i just i can't imagine that actually i mean i guess it depends on how they present it but that still seems absolutely asinine that they're bringing in known recanted statements and they're like yeah we're still gonna prosecute we're gonna kid. we're gonna have them talk about the first signed statement oh. and not ask them questions about anything else Stupid. i'm sure that was their plan so um in daniel's attorney's statement uh he opened with emphasizing the flaws in the state's evidence he highlighted contra, uh, I always want to say contraindications when I am about to say contradictions. That's not the medical um, word. It is not the right word. It literally just rolls off my tongue now I, I do it too. whenever I see that word. And so it's just like in stuck in my brain. But um, Daniel's attorney highlighted any uh, false details that were signed and pointed out all of the like just like falsehoods that these boys had said in their statement that didn't align up from story to story. He argued that the detective used intimidation and illegal tactics during interrogations and suggested an alternative suspect, Rudy Flores. The state presented testimony from the surviving victims, responding officers, and forensic experts but none could connect the accused to the crime. So they're just flooding the jury with information, hoping that they think that it's all related to the, like, against the defendant. Yeah. They're not actually relating it to said defendant. Yeah. I think, like, you bring in enough experts and you can confuse the jury. I think you can overwhelm the jury with information. And then they're, so they're listening to all of it. And I can imagine some people, they're hearing all this information and they're like, well, if they're bringing it up, it must be related or against the defendant. Otherwise, why would they bring it up? Right. Right. Why are we hearing this? Why like yeah. why is it pertinent? Exactly. So they this this trial lasted several day like several days. Um they state called David Rangel to testify. Uh he testified that Viegas uh had claimed responsibility for the shooting, but he admitted that he was joking. Rodney Williams, who was called, provided an alibi for himself and Viegas and revealed that his statement to the police was coerced and false. Marcos Gonzalez also disavowed his statement, stating it was beaten out of him. The defense pointed out the threats and coercion during their interrogations. Uh, Detective Marquez and Detective Graves 
who obtained, who gave statements, denied using all illegal tactics. The defense questioned their credibility, highlighting that there was allegations and perjury against Marquez in an internal affairs investigation. And Graves was also under an internal affairs investigation. So the state relied solely on those disavowed statements. I can't even believe that they brought somebody that's under an IA investigation up in, like, the police officers that are involved. Like, oh, we're um, going to slide over this fact that there's an internal affairs investigation against these guys. Like, let's, let's not talk about that and their integrity. Let's just move forward and assume that they're in right. good standing. Right. They're doing the investigation because we're just, it's part of the protocol. That's, it's like something that we have to do that doesn't mean that they've done anything wrong it's just the way the police work and that's just what we do to make sure everything's safe and sound here like yeah don't think about it that's all you need to know <laughs> move beyond it um but during uh viegas's defense case there was 18 witnesses that supported his alibi and his defense um Many of the witnesses actually also testified to Detective Marquez's pattern of legal tactics and um, testified to the fact that he had committed perjury himself. The defense argued that Daniel Villegas had a vulnerability to falsely confess under um, a tough police interrogation due to his learning disability, his attention deficit disorder, emotional problems, and Possibly, maybe even a little uh, mental retardation. And the fact that he was tortured. And the fact that he was tortured. But like, or just the fact that he's 17. And like 16. I always want to say he's 17 there, but he's 16. He's yeah. 16 at the time of these interrogations. And like that alone, who cares about any of the other mental health stuff? Like that alone should be enough to say the police really fucked up here. Yeah. Like they did not do a good job. No, they did not. So, the trial concluded on December 12th of 1994, and it was a hung jury. I can't even, like, how the, how how do you get over that? There's all these witnesses that are like, yeah, he wasn't there. Yeah, we recant our statements. I'm like, "Mm, maybe it could have happened. We can't decide. Who the fuck can't decide? I mean, they, I'm who is that person? Yeah, who is that person? I don't know. Again, I didn't like. I didn't really watch a ton of like. I've read the transcripts from this, and it really was difficult for me to understand how anyone could sit in a jury and go like, "Oh yeah, he could be guilty." Yeah, he's potentially guilty, even though he has a solid alibi. There's no evidence evidence against him. Right. The police are under investigation. There was no gun ever found, and he claimed he used a shotgun. Like, because technically. There's no gun found, right? Yeah. Like the 22 they they did find, they never was totally irrelevant to this. Like that's because it would have exonerated him. Of course it would have. Yeah, I don't know whoever decided that he might be guilty. I hate them. Oh yeah, that is sheer stupidity. Yeah, well, I actually think a decent number of them thought that he was guilty, and the jury was more leaning towards the side of guilt. Versus not guilt, but it doesn't matter. Thank God. However, the state continued to pursue Daniel. 
Of course they did. There's no evidence. Why would we decide that we're not going to continue to pursue this? Yep. Instead of just letting it go, they just continued. Um, I think it is important to remind you of what I had said at the beginning, which is that DA that had been elected to the city. This was his thing. Mm -hmm. He made a big deal about this case because it was the first murder that happened after he was elected. And he like had to get someone for it but this kid wasn't known to be in a gang it didn't like so it doesn't even fit his platform it it, but it it, you write the narrative and it does you know these like gangbanger kids like that they don't even have to be really associated with a gang to necessarily be like oh he looks the part so let's just do it we are stereotyping you oh yeah oh a hundred percent that's what was happening here for sure so the state continued to pursue Viegas, uh, and he had a second trial for capital murder start on August 21st, 1995. This time, he had uh, prosecutor Jamie Espereza representing the state, and the state had appointed attorney John Gates to represent Viegas. John Gates was appointed just 67 days before the trial. The state's case relied on out-of-court statements from Marcos Gonzalez and Rodney Williams, who still both disavowed uh, their original statements at their second trial. Out-of-court statements? So did they actually bring the kids in or did they just read their statements? So I think, actually, I'm not, I'm actually, I'm not sure if they came in and physically testified. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I I would have to look. I'll have yeah. to get back to you on that one on this case. Um, because you said out of court statements, right? I'm gonna guess that they didn't bring the kids in. They read those statements. So they reasoning. yeah. So they like that was the statement that they used. Whether or not they brought the kids in and allowed the kids a chance to disavow them, like I would be shocked if they actually did. They probably just read the statements. I would guess that too. Yeah. Um. So the state's openings statement emphasized the alleged admission of guilt in the statements and urged the jury to convict Viegas based on this evidence. They called mostly the same witnesses as the previous trial and relied on their same arguments. Viegas's attorney Gates, however, reserved his opening statement until after the state had presented its evidence. So I know some attorneys do this. Mm-hmm. Um, they wait until it's their turn. Basically. Yeah. They want, like, the chance to really, like, have that more powerful opening statement. Um, However, I've I've been, I've heard that it is not great both ways because you really sort of want it out of the jump. Put a little doubt in the jury's mind Mm -hmm. before they have a chance to just listen to everything that's presented to them and have their mind almost made up before you get to even open your mouth and present anything to this jury. I can see it both ways. Um, one, you definitely want to get your point across right away, right? Because that's first impression. But also, we retain like the last things that we learn the easiest. So if you, knowing that, like the prosecution presents their case and then the defense comes in and is like, yeah, you've heard all this, but listen to my opening statements, listen to my argument. And that should potentially be the last thing that sticks in their mind. Right. But you always get your closing arguments too. That's true. So it's like, that's what you reserve that for. Like your closing arguments is that like last, everything they said is a lie. Like, yeah. 
feel like it's so important to, from the jump, like yeah. just sort of just let them know he's a seven, like remind him he was 16 years old. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. But also at the same time, not, I mean, devil's advocate, I guess. Um, if he had just been appointed and he didn't get any of the, cause they, he should have requested, um, what is that? The delay so that he could prepare more. I don't remember what it's officially called. Um, but he should have requested that. And if he didn't get it or if he didn't request it, he might have reserved his statement so that he could kind of continue prepared. getting prepared as the prosecution's going. That's a real glass half full uh, view right there. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's good to have that occasionally. So uh, Gates, who had reserved that opening statement, he rarely ever cross-examined the witnesses and ultimately he only called one witness himself the witness that he called was there to recreate the murder scene it is unclear what the objective was there a lot of people have been asked about the like the impact of that expert coming in to testify and it was quite confusing to everyone there was no real understanding why it was necessary to recreate a crime scene that you really should be arguing your defendant wasn't even there for. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, the first trial, what, there was like 18 witnesses for the defense. There and was. When there's one, one and it's not even. Not even anyone who knows him. Yeah. Like can't yeah. speak to who he is. Can't. That's horrible. It's Yeah. It's pretty Again, sad. I'm going to bring up the case that I did in Texas. This is the same thing. The defense is just like, yep. Like, yeah, they're not even defending the person at this point. It's scary. Like, that's ineffective counsel it, of its finest. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, Daniel's lawyer at this point, at the closing statement that we had discussed, uh, his ending quote was, Daniel had no intention of killing anyone. He had just been reckless. So again, he just conceded to his guilt. He literally just told the jury everything they need to know. Everything they need to know. Yeah. Is, like I said, ineffective counsel. Yeah. That's so, all. I don't know. There's nothing left. On August 24th, 1995, Daniel Villegas was found guilty of two counts of capital murder and sentenced to life in jail. That is absolutely heinous. Oh, it's, it's just so, it's so devastating. Yeah. And that's like when I was saying, like, the danger is a little different here. I feel like there's layers of danger in this story that you meet. Like, one is the the police and then the other is, like, the lawyers. Yeah. The people who, like, both of those people you count on to serve and protect you and help you and be there to, like, guide you through things that we're obviously need assistance in. Mm -hmm. And it failed on two extreme levels here it's really devastating well i feel like actually three because i will throw in the prosecution because they should have the state should have looked at that and said there's not any actual evidence for sure yeah and i mean the fact that the kids are underage alone their confessions i that is absolutely ridiculous that we're using these yeah um, and there's no there's no lawyer present there's no parent present there's no guardian present they should absolutely not be allowed to use that information. It, and, it, yeah, you're. It, I bet you there's even many more layers. That oh, I'm sure. We could yeah, break into and say, wait, how did that happen? And how did that happen? Like, yeah, all these safeguards. Yeah, just all 
pushed aside for this to happen just to get this kid who had like no no connection yeah absolutely no connection so um while daniel was in jail he was serving a life sentence and life outside the prison walls went on for his family he continued to demand that he was innocent and attempted to appeal his conviction he was denied his appeal on uh two occasions so this is where i feel like the story has like this white and shining armor sort of walking into play which is like the first first like real positive thing in my opinion that's happened to daniel since he was 16 years old and randomly had the police show up to his door mm-hmm. um and like it's just a breath of fresh air that decency existed out there for him so after decades of attempting to exonerate himself, um, his parents were not giving up hope either. John Mimbelli is a man who walked into their life on just a sunny barbecue day and really changed that for them. He said that he walked into this barbecue and he saw these two people crying and he had to know what was going on. So John was married to the ex-wife of Daniel's brother. Okay. It's a unique one to really sort of wrap your head around there. But the ex-wife was remained friends with this family and she like loved her ex-husband still, Mm -hmm. loved the uh, parents. And so they were just hanging out. And John was a first generation, um, Mexican-American who was incredibly successful at uh, construction. And he had the largest construction business in El Paso at the time. And he was quite wealthy. Yeah, that comes with a lot of money. (laughs) Came with a lot of money. So he asked why Daniel's parents were crying this one, uh, one day at this barbecue. And they told him that they had just lost an appeal and that their son was serving this life sentence in jail for this crime he didn't commit. John asked uh, to know more. He questioned uh, all of the different angles and thoughts of the case and then decided he ultimately wanted to get every piece of information they had. So Daniel's parents sent him into their little side room, which was just full of boxes and documents for the last like 15 years and John took them all home. Uh, it was reported that they like put them all in the back of his pickup and it was like loaded to the top. They had to tarp it all down. Um, and he took it, took it all home with him. I can imagine that his parents must've had a pretty powerful statement for some, somebody who didn't know them to be like, this sounds crazy enough that I want to look into it myself and get involved and help you guys. Like, for, you know, just a random meeting, a random person, you hear this crazy story. Most people be like, yeah, mm, sure. You know what I mean? Right. Like, or like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. But then that's yeah. like that. You but know? I feel like to believe the story enough to want right. to help, like the parents had to be pretty convincing themselves. I bet you they've had practiced that statement uh, like oh, so sure. many times in their head, right? Like, yeah, No, maybe not practice, but I'm sure they've had to have this conversation multiple times right. with people. And right. so there's that. Like, we've been fighting this for our whole life. This is what we're fighting. Um, So 
John looked over these papers for like such a brief amount of time and then decided that he was going to use all of his own money and he hired a private investigator and a former El Paso Police Department detective to reinvestigate the crime. He then hired a lawyer, Joe Spencer, on January 16th, 2014, and they petitioned the court and applied for an appeal, which they were granted a new trial. That is such a time difference. We're already in 2014. Yes. uh, Villegas, at this point, had spent nine nine years in jail yeah um prison or prison yes <laughs> sorry a, everybody does it my, like my thing I, I can't i can't i know jail is before you get right. sentenced jail is like the what right. i watch my little youtube yeah. videos on where they go prison is after sentencing unless you come back to jail to get resentenced okay i just how long do every, people stay in jail for if you're going like to get resentenced like, so, do they just send you for the day and then send you back? It depends on the situation. Um, most of the time, the guys here, I feel like they'll spend, like, a week there. And it's because we have to get them there. Then they have to go to the court day. And then we have to get them back. And it doesn't, There's. it's not a quick movement. I feel like that'd be scary for, like, the guy who's, like, hanging out in jail because he, you know, got, like, a DUI and a sentence for, like, six months in jail or whatever. And then the prisoner comes in and <laughs> like oh sure um i don't think they're always housed in the same area because there's okay. different areas of the jail too and i've never been to any of the jails um one of my friends well this okay i have a weird caliber of friends okay one of my friends in high school uh when he was in jail before he got sentenced he was in um he said that there's like several different areas basically and the pod that he was in, it was all people waiting to get sentenced for their initial crime. And he used to hate it because anytime anybody would act up, they would throw like tear gas and stuff into the oh, room. Wow. Because you have to get them because there's so many people in the one room that they'd have to get them subdued before they could go in to like handcuff them and move them. Oh. Yeah. He said and he said that um, while awaiting sentencing because um, they have like bunk beds and um, it sounded like. Um, it reminded me of my barracks when I was in um, basic training that it was kind of like an open bay, but then it's like there's other open bays that you can't get to right. for jail. Not yeah, there. right. Um, but he said that he was on the top bunk, and at one point he was so sick of being there because, I mean, when you're in jail, there's you go to the yard or you're in your bunk, like you're in your little pod area. Right. There's not much to do. It's not like prison where there's more structure to it. Um, I mean... There is structure, just not as much. And they're they're all in limbo. They're all waiting. Right. You're not like doing a job and mm-hmm. right. Yeah, you're not in prison. You don't have a job yet. Right. Um, and so he got so sick and tired of being there that he actually threw himself off a top bunk so that he could go to the hospital for a couple of days. Oh my god. Because he's like, I couldn't he's like, I couldn't stand it anymore. And he goes, and the guys were fighting all the time. And so most like most prisons nowadays, they try to put them there's sort of segregation but it's for safety reasons um like if you have gang tattoos they're not going to put you with somebody that you, they're like oh well right, they have different like, gang tattoos right we're going to put these two together and just see how they do like they do they mm-hmm. try to keep them separated obviously for safety reasons um if there's a white supremacy tattoo you're not going to put them with right. anybody of color if you can help it um because it just keeps the other person safe like they don't actually give a shit about you 
the gang member. Right. They care about the other person. Right. right? They're not doing it so you can like join a club. They're yeah. doing it so you for don't safety reasons. Kill someone. Um, yeah. So and I don't think that at least where I grew up, I don't think there was much of that type of separation. And so there was a lot of fighting over um there's a lot of like where I live it was whites against um indigenous people is was like a big fight. Mm-hmm. Um nobody else wants to live where I live. So those are the only groups that can be there and fight. Um, there were still problems. And I was like, oh. Yeah. So, but I think that if you came back from the prison to go to the jail, you would end up in a different pod. You wouldn't be with the people that are potentially low level. Right. Right. You're, they're not going to like. Yeah. But then once you're sentenced, you go to prison. And every state is different with that, too. Again, my hometown state, you would go to. Um, the maximum level prison to start and you would start in seclusion until they figured out where to put you essentially um so he ended up in a level three which would here would be a medium security prison here um there's a lot of different factors it it would goes based on like your sentencing time and um other things so that like we in our maximum security prison, we have a lot of low level inmates, but it's because they're going to parole and they're going to parole back into this area. So they're not going to send them to one of the lower level prisons that's right. further away. Because again, so not to get like on a big tangent, because I could talk oh, no, all day it's about fascinating. This. I love, um, love So the way that we parole is pretty poor in this state, which is why our recidivism is pretty high. Um, from the maximum security prison, so the big prison that we have in the middle of our town, uh, in the state capital. No, it's wild. It's so wild. It's because it started on the outskirts, and the city grew around it and into it. Basically, it's so strange, though. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, I know. You just drive by and you're like, "That is a very big wall." Yeah. Um, but they essentially give them either like a bus ticket or like their paperwork, and they walk out the front door the day they get paroled. Right. That is it. Downtown Salem. That's it. That's all that happens. There's no, there's not like, um, somebody's going to come pick you up and take you to a halfway house. You know, um, if you have family and they know you're getting paroled that day, they can come get you. But again, you're just shoot out the front door. Um, Right. Whereas other states do a little bit better about, um, if you start out at a higher level, um, they kind of work you down. And as you get towards like paroling, they'll try and get you a job set up. They'll try and get you intermediate housing set up, all of these things to try and keep you from yeah. um, committing another crime to keep the recidivism rate down. Although I think this state, there's parameters. So they don't consider it recidivism, which is the rate in which offenders reoffend and come back. They don't consider it that if it's a different crime. Oh, which, well, that's stupid. Which brings their numbers down so then the state can be like see we're actually doing really well which is not the case right you know know, their first level crime that they go in is for like petty theft or burglary and then they go in again for drug charges they don't consider that recidivism yeah and then the third is not recommitting the same crime so we reformed them not to be a like burglarized yeah. anywhere. <laughs> like, so unless it's the same crime, they don't count it here. Anyway, that's just a quick down and dirty oh, of some of the prisons. I we could do a whole episode. I, just, on I the feel like I nonsense. Could, I know I could hear a whole like I could do an entire episode on yeah just that because my knowledge strictly comes from like a very brief interaction myself with law enforcement, yeah. um, which lasted less than forty eight hours and. 
than TV shows and yeah, movies. Which is and so wrong. It's, I'm sure it is. Yeah. And, and every state is different. So again, I know my home, like I know Michigan um, because small town. Um, I knew a lot of corrections officers growing up. And then I had a friend that ended up um, joining the corrections on the other side for a while. Um, and then I had an uncle in Arizona. So I know a little bit about that culture, but he definitely protected me in a way that I didn't know all of it because um, like more of the Southern states are considered to be the heart of prisons and California. Um, so he didn't go into complete detail with it, but as I got older, he would tell us kind of more and more information. Yeah. Um, and my sister and I definitely asked, I think a lot of questions and we pushed him cause we wanted like, oh, I wanted to you know. You want to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then here I worked for a little while in the, and so I know like sort of the ins and outs. Yeah. Um, and you just see some of the system and some of the, like just the oddities of things that happen. Like I said, for a state here where we're so, it's so liberal, it, that their prison reform is some of the worst I've seen it, or heard that of. That is actually quite shocking to me. Yeah. Because uh, I know California is doing a lot right now in order to try to reform, like, their prisoners and really get them set up for success Mm -hmm. when they walk out that door um and when i say a lot i mean like a like maybe not ever across the board in california but Mm -hmm. like down like down south they have like legitimate programs where you are already working the job before you walk out that door you've already met your new boss yeah like and we don't do that here and we just give them a bus ticket and say good luck yeah Anyway, sorry about the tangent. Oh, no, I love we'll get it. back to the case. I love it. Um, so let's see, where were we when I uh, we left off? So we have John here, mm-hmm. and they were approved to do this appeal with all of John's money and his team that he has uh, set together for Daniel. So um, before they go to court, Daniel then is offered the Alfred plea. Um, which in itself is like, like such a great victory. Um, and yes and no, I feel like the Alfred plays a slap in the face. So um, I don't know if you want to describe what it is, um, but it's. I'm sorry. I no, go took for over. it. No, please do. Like, go for it. So an Alfred plea is bra- basically the person saying, "I'm not guilty, but the state has enough evidence to prove my guilt, and so I'm going to sign off on it." Essentially, right. You're. You're basically saying, I'm guilty, but not I'm, guilty. I will say that I'm guilty mm-hmm. <laughs> to make every this all go away. Mm-hmm. Like, and I will also say that I've served enough time for you. So we're just done with this. Mm-hmm. But it's going to follow me around on my record yeah. for the rest of my life. And I am now officially a murderer. Yeah, which is why I don't like it for him. Because um, if they had exonerated him completely, um, the state would then owe him money for every year that he served. Um, because that's considered a wrongful, wrongful conviction at that point, um, right. which makes the it, it doesn't make the incarceration illegal, but it's basically the state paying penance for keeping him in. Um, and with the Alfred plea, he's not going to get any of that. Yeah. So he he really went back and forth on this a lot. Um, at this point, he had been in jail for like 10, 10 years. Then he was put on bond, but he's still, you know, or he was in prison. Let me fix that. <laughs> we just went over that, Samantha. Don't um, make me correct you again. Um, so he he really struggled with, like, do I take this plea or do I, 
you know, fight this again. Mm -hmm. And he went back and forth. He asked a lot of his friends. Um, and then let me just uh, jump a jump ahead here a little bit because we covered what the Alfred plea is. Um, he said that he was like reminded of a story that someone had told him at one point. And it's a story I've like heard before, and I'm sure many of you have heard, but it's this man who is swimming in the ocean and he starts to drown. And so he begs God, he prays to God and he says, please save me. I, I need you to save me. And God uh, like tells him, I'll protect you. I'll save you. And he believes and has this faith. And the next thing you know, this man comes up in a boat and he's like, hey, jump in. You're drowning. Let me save you. Let me help you. And he's like, no, no, no. Don't worry about it. God's got me. So the man in the boat says, all right, bye. Uh, <laughs> and so this guy's still drowning, still struggling. And he's like, God, please save me. And next thing you know, this man in a helicopter comes up and he sees him. He goes, hey, you're drowning. Let me save you. And he says, no, no, no. God's got me. I have faith. He's got me. And next thing you know, the man drowns and he dies. <laughs> um, and he meets God up in heaven and he asks God, what? like what the heck man <laughs> you were supposed to save me and god's like you idiot i did i sent you a boat and a helicopter like and you didn't get on them like and daniel said that he thought about that story over and over again and thought that that second helicopter that second person there to get him was the alfred plea yeah and he's like how stupid would it be for me to deny that because the you know there's deals that he was offered along the way the first time and he didn't and then he got sentenced to life and he was still facing going back to prison for life mm -hmm. and so he just felt like he really had this opportunity and he would maybe be foolish not to take it yeah. um i have a random question yeah do you know what how many years of life sentences in texas um no, I don't. I'm you trying to gonna I'm look trying, it up. I'm trying to look it up really fast. Um, I might have it somewhere in my notes, but so was it with the possibility of parole or um without? Without. Oh, never mind. It doesn't matter. Um, but in Texas, it says that it's forty years. Because in our state, life is twenty-five years. Okay, which is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Who decided twenty-five? Anyway, that's sorry. not a life. No, it's not. Um. Anyway, that's why like you're eligible for parole. chapter. Yeah, so you're sentenced years. to a chapter of your life in jail. That's so what I, they should say. Yeah. So I always get interested, like when they say life. I'm like, yeah, but how many years do you have to serve? I would in that state. If I were to have said anything, I would have. Again, sorry, Texas. Yeah, I love. I enjoy Texas a lot. Been there many times. Great state. But I would have assumed that life in Texas was probably one of the more harsh. Like 40 is there. actually yeah i would think so yeah i mean without parole i guess it moot point but yeah i was curious although he was 16 when he was like committed this crime so if it was all about 80 years yeah but... i'm still surprised that they didn't revisit that because most states have revisited the like people that are under 18 right they get life um or death sentences they've been reviewing the cases and are like mm, that might be a little harsh for a child to have received it and they have to go through kind of the extenuating circumstances of each case and his i feel like 
Maybe they would have gotten there. Yeah. But it was like 2014 that this guy, John, sort of comes onto the scene. So if he was probably just on the list of names that eventually they would start maybe like looking into the cases again. But yeah. And again, I don't know a whole lot about the Texas like system. So I don't know if they have any of those types of reforms. I know California is like the big one that does um, kind of that look back on. Oh, maybe we oversensed them. Yeah. So okay. Sorry. Maybe Texas doesn't do that. <laughs> I'd say I'll quit interrupting, but that's not true. I'll I'll keep no, interrupting. That's fine. I I enjoy the interruptions. Um. So here he is at this like cusp of do I take this plea or not? And he then started to get like letters from other inmates, um, who were finding out that he had been out on bond and he was potentially going to you know get his life back and there was a theme that continued to come in which was like i'm so thankful you get a chance to do this Mm -hmm. like you you have an opportunity to finally tell your story and finally set like set the record straight and uh if i could if i could do it all over again what i would do differently and and Daniel just realized at that point, like all of these people would take this opportunity to really tell tell their story mm-hmm. and exonerate themselves. And he said, "I'm going to do it for everyone who can't." And he decided to go back to to court. So uh, his third trial began on October 1st of 2018. This time, prosecutors couldn't use his confession, and much of the police's investigative work uh, had been discredited. Instead, the state relied on Rangel, who again testified that Villegas had said he had uh, shot the men. Um, The jury deliberated for eight hours, and just over two days before... uh, it was his 25th year anniversary. Vegas was found not guilty. It's about time. Yeah. So he like spent he spent 80 years. Turns out, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. like in jail, and he he just was like screwed by the system. Mm-hmm. And it was, I will tell you now, uh, the video I watched is of this the like final like finality of the judge telling him that he is a free man like you're Mm -hmm. totally you're done with all of this um and it's the verdict of like just you just hear it it resonates i you should all go look it up on youtube like it's an incredible video it just like sends shivers down my spine to like see this man you literally can just see him like gut wrenched of like what it like what is my future mm-hmm. and within like a sentence it, just everyone around him just realizes how much he's just got back and the life that he's been granted again and mm-hmm. thank god for john yeah yeah that man is a s- literal saint like that's ridiculous he's amazing yeah like we all need a john we all need a john oh, we do yeah. it like man there should be statues of like erected for him like it just is a reminder that there's like there is overwhelming good out there as well yeah yeah 
And so what, more powerful than that. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, he did go to prison the first time. He did, but. So what becomes of him after the trial? Do we know? Um, yeah, so he now is actually going back to, he's going to law school, not back to law school. He is going to law school. Um, he actually he got his uh, GED when he was in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't know what to do. When he left prison, he was like, totally he was just beside himself he didn't just didn't get it there was cell phones even were Mm -hmm. a thing that weren't a thing and life was a lot different for him and he really he did struggle yeah um but he met a woman they got married they had two kids together um and he actually put a little facebook post out um after this woman like had created a facebook page for him and he said i'm looking for some work willing to do anything for anyone um just let me know if you have anyone that needs something done and he had like a overwhelming response from legal team all around in like the california area um and they all were like desperate to get him on their team i don't know if it's like because it's a like it's a trendy thing but it was all these like big powerful california legal teams down like South South Carolina or South uh, California. And he ultimately decided to become like a legal aid. They moved to like the LA area and he's now going to law school on their dime too. They're paying for his school. And that's super exciting. um, He wants to represent people who have unfortunately gone through the same stuff he has. Yeah. Um, To touch back on the, you know, he had a hard time getting out. And of course, there's going to be like a reintegration process for anybody because it's so much different there than it is outside here. Um, they do actually have a program here before they get out that they teach people cell phones and they teach them um, how they like debit cards and things like that. Where, you know, because they're like, oh, yeah, most things are cashless now. And you don't, we don't think about that or the fact that cell phones or social media is out there and they're they walk into a world that they don't know how to participate in they do actually have programs that help them with that process so that they won't be quite as lost i feel like i guess not but i was gonna say i feel like at this point we must be almost reaching that point that like people who are coming out of prison had a little taste of the cell cell phone but no definitely not like Mm-mm. definitely not right mm-hmm. like what a different world mm-hmm. when i um was still in the system there was a bunch of the like geriatric population basically yeah um of these older guys that were finally getting released after 50 60 years in um they have never seen a debit card they had never right? seen a cell phone. Everything was either cash or check. And you had to be like, that's not how we do things anymore. And they would come out of this class looking shell shocked. They were oh. like, how am I going to deal with this? And like, I promise once you use it a few times, like it really, like it'll start to click. But you're going to need a support system, which Gosh. is a weird thing to think about. Yeah. What yeah. was it? Or was it- on being online. Because um, not every state allows um access to computers here like there's like a i think a legal library that they can use and there is like a area that they can get into but it's highly monitored so what they can get on and 
I mean, that's more of the younger guys type thing than the older ones. Yeah. They're like, I don't even know what this computer yeah, thing is. Use that. Yeah. And <laughs> so they have to teach them how to use these oh, like electronic equipment. It's In insane. Would mm-hmm. be wild yeah. to experience for the first time. Like especially it's... because they never saw it as it started. They never it, they never grew right. with it. Right. So now it's just it just would be this thing. Yeah. Like that is there. Yeah, it would be that would be so wild. That's crazy. Yeah, there's like there's some good movies out there with like that process that takes place, and I'm it's movies, so I'm sure it's all like uh like dramatized. But there's so it seems, and I could understand this that there are some people who have spent 50, 60, 70 years in prison, Mm -hmm. and they don't want to leave at that point. And maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> you look at me like, oh, they probably all want to leave. I don't but, think I've ever met any guy that said they never wanted to leave. Some of them do admit that it's it was easy. Like their time was easy in the fact that they didn't have to think about too many things. Like they had a job. Um, if they were an independent, you know, they try to stay out of trouble. So an independent is somebody who's not related, like not in a gang. They're yeah. not affiliated to anybody. Um, and in our state, you can get away with being an independent independent pretty easily um other states again i don't know about them southern states i would think are less likely um but again i don't know too terrible much about that but they're like yeah but it's gonna be nice to basically not shit in front of hundreds of dudes anymore like yeah oh my goodness i get to shut i get to shut the door i actually like regret that story (laughs) yeah because it's like that's silly yeah i've heard i mean i've seen drama today organizations where they're like i never want to leave and all the dudes i talk to are like they're literally counting the days down if they have days left yeah Yeah, Um, silly to say that like you're so scared to be reintegrated that you want to stay in prison yeah it's like no matter how scary it is outside of prison it's better (laughs) yeah there's freedom right yeah and i do know that there's like again integration like issues sometimes um when my uncle first came home he would start sleeping on the bed and he'd end up on the floor because the bed was too soft Mm -hmm. because i mean they get these tiny little mattresses um that are just they're terrible right um a lot of guys would talk about how they would wake up at certain times because they're so used to count times um so in the middle of the night they don't have to get out of their bunks but like every other count i think they have to legit stand up and part of it is to make sure that they're still alive uh, honestly and to make sure that they're they're not like they didn't hide anything in their bed like yeah. it's actually them getting up um, but it is a safety measure like you know that they're okay if they're standing up and that's how they identify a lot of sick guys because they're still laying in bed and you're like dude are you all right and i mean especially like in the summer um diabetics go down oh, all for the time sure. um, we'd get them all the time they'd go out in the yard and you hear they call the man down, and that just means they ne- need medical help. 90% of the time, somebody's hypoglycemic because they went out in 90-degree heat and worked out. And you're like, oh, are you kidding me right now? Right. Like, you know better. Um, they had some construction work in the prison um, on the outside um, during the summer. And again, man down, heat stroke, you know? And you're like, are you? What? Like, all the time, I'm sure. Just stop it. Yeah. Like, drink water. Yeah do something and so we're like packing them with ice like come on dude what are you doing um little things like that so i mean one like i said when they're walking 
um, one of the things that they do is have them stand up. And so like my uncle would say that he'd get up first thing in the morning and he'd stand up without registering that he was doing it. And he was like, I had to break myself of the fact that I had to stand up at the edge of my bed in the morning. Oh my Dude. God. Yeah. Like, that would be such a strange habit to break. Because mm-hmm. you know? it would be it, like it, the way you wake up is pretty like intrinsic almost. Yeah. So you've like built that into your. Yeah. And if you've done it for multiple years, like you're like, all right. Yeah. I guess I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, I guess I'm just going to lay back down. All right. Well, that was a great case. Thank you for bringing that. It was definitely, that definitely falls in the genre of what we talk about. It's uh, definitely a little, little dangerous to interact with uh, really anyone outside of yourself, truthfully. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, you never know. All right. Well, to all those out there listening, be careful. It's a dangerous world we live in.